welcome you all to International Writers' Stage. Yes, here I am in front of a full house. In fact, it's been completely sold out for quite a while. And my name is Ingemar Fast. I'm Artistic Director of Literary Events at Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. And since our gigantic hub at Sergeyev Square is temporarily closed down. We had to find, for this specific evening, an utterly appropriate venue, both in size and atmosphere. And those of you who've read a certain novel, and what a marvelous novel that is, and a gloriously seductive literary feast, titled Dunbar, published in Sweden by Albert Bonius Verlag. Those of you who have read this specific novel, you fully understand that uh, a theater happens to be the only option for this event. And it's also an homage to tonight's guest of honor. And in fact, also an, an homage to uh, Old Will, William Shakespeare. I said feast. And it's also a feast to dive into the translation of Dunbar by Mr. Erik Andersson. And although he's not present tonight, I urge you all to applaud his achievement right here and right now. And, and I'm sure it will be heard all the way to his home in Arlingsås on the West Coast. And the writer you, you, you so eagerly have been waiting for, for for so many months is actually a returner. And when he was here last time, and that was on March the 7th, 2017, then during the dinner after the event, he expressed a certain longing to go up north for a while, maybe to meet the whiteness and maybe to meet a few reindeers as well. Who knows? Therefore, I'm utterly grateful, or I was grateful until a couple of hours ago, that we here in Stockholm at least could present him with a few minus degrees and uh, some fake Christmas elks draped in uh, lead lights. Okay, tonight you should have met a guest of honor in conversation with Johanna Kolyanen. But sadly, this very morning, she had to cancel her appearance due to illness. But you, you should stay calm, because um, a true hero is accompanying a guest of honor on stage. And that, the name of that true hero is Daniel Sandström, literary director at Albert Bonius Verlag. So that said, it's time to say this. Please welcome, from London, and accompanied by Mr. Sandstrom, the one and only, Edward St. Aubin. Thank you, Ingmar, and thank you all for coming here tonight. Uh, and thank you for accepting that I'm not Johanna Kolyanen. Uh, um, sometimes there are hard facts you just have to live by. Um, and, but I'm 
the publisher of this book, and which makes me very grateful because uh, publishing the Melrose novels and now Dunbar has been a professional highlight uh, for me, and 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 it's been uh, such a tremendous journey to see how these books have been received in Sweden, and I think you all here being here tonight is is a great testament to that. Um, Teddy, uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, I think we should start from uh, somewhat from the beginning because um, talking about Dunbar, and I w want to say what Ingmar said that this is a fabulous translation again by Eric Anderson. Uh, but it, we have to go back in time um, to the to to the early days of, of English lit, and also maybe I thought to the beginning of, of your writer's life um, because I want to speak somewhat about reading, uh, firstly. So. At what age uh, and what point in life did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Uh, well, I first tried to write a novel when I was 12, and <laughs> I got to page 40, mm -hmm. which remained a, a, a stubborn ceiling for me until I finished Nevermind. I did four or five novels in my 20s, which also mysteriously aborted at page 40. <laughs> <laughs> so I started... I, and, <clears throat> but I broke through the ceiling when I was about 28. Yeah. What, what happened at page 40? I, I realized that, well, uh, when I was 12, um, what happened is that I decided to climb a tree instead or something like that. <laughs> but later on, it was because um, I, uh, I was trying to write uh, a book that was... <coughs> Clever, you yeah. know, or, um, or about literature. It was evading what I knew would have to be my central subject mm. if I ever wrote a, a book that I could finish. Yeah. Um, so these merely clever novels, if they were clever, I don't know, because they've all been burnt. <laughs> um, so I'm just, I'm Sadly. just throwing it out there that they were clever, but they probably weren't even that. Um, they got, uh, yes, they got destroyed because they weren't, um, they didn't have any vitality. There's a mysterious quality of a book either being alive or yeah. not. Yeah. Which I'm sure you're familiar with. <laughs> it has <laughs> happened. <publisher. laughs> you have to do to discern uh, whether it's alive or not. But would you would you say that your um, adventures into writing, even at the age of twelve, were you um, was it was it the the wordplay in itself that drove you there, or was it like the reading that you've been doing that drove you towards that area? What what was the driving force? Um, yes, it was. Yes, I was very interested. Uh, I, I very early on identified uh, writing as the as the route to to liberation mm. and to mastery. You know, I had a my <clears throat> I had a feeling that my experience was always uh, overwhelming and chaotic. And I have to say, I haven't lost it. I feel it right now. <laughs> um, but uh, and that writing would be the way to bring mm. order uh, to that emotional turmoil. And the other thing was that um, I had a, a very strong relationship with reading mm. that, that uh, 
um, I felt very isolated, really, uh, for the first 25 years of my life. I never talked about uh, my upbringing. Mm. And so um, it, w it was through reading and, and seeing things that I'd felt astonishingly reflected in other people's writing that I, I got some relief mm. from that sense of isolation. So <clears throat> I, I thought it would be interesting to be at the other end of the, mm. the communication was because it meant so much to me. Yeah. Did you, was there any books that uh, made a special difference for you at, at this formative age? Well, before I was 12, the first book that made a huge difference to me was about a tugboat um, <laughs> in New York Harbor. And um, it was, this uh, tugboat was much despised by the bigger tugboats. Um, and, and then one day there was a terrible storm mm. and there was a liner which was in great trouble. But all the big tugboats were too frightened of going out in the in the storm. But the little tugboat went out <laughs> and <coughs> and saved the liner. Yeah. And then it came back into New York Harbor, and there was a ticker tape parade, and the mayor turned up, and there was a band. And I looked at this picture with fascination, mm. yeah. and I I very much identified with the. The despised little tugboat. Yeah. So I uh, could go on. I mean, <laughs> but the, we yeah, well, get to I, Nabokov for some time tomorrow morning. Yeah. Maybe, but I was thinking because you told me yesterday um, that you, because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to Shakespeare on, on kind of a on long a tugboat. Route. Yeah. So yeah. I'm thank you. <laughs> uh, but so so then during. During you, you were preparing your A levels for for university. Then you started to engage in a semi-professional way with with someone like Shakespeare. Um, well, I was doing my A levels, yes, which are the entrance exams to university in England, or to some universities. There was a separate exam for Oxford and Cambridge in those days. But and and Lear was one of the mm. the books. Mm. Uh, there was Eliot. Uh, Yeats, Lear, <coughs> Portrait of a Lady by Henry James. Mm. Then I was reading French, where there was mm. Flaubert, mm. Phèdre by Racine, Baudelaire. So all of those books were, all of those authors were authors I lived with for mm. two two years. Mm. And that never happens again. No. And so I was um, saturated in those influences. Mm. So I think I think all of those writers are sort of in my psyche in a way that um, that no other writer can ever be because yeah. I, I read them again and again. What drove you to? I mean, we're going to speak about Lear more in depth later. But what drove you to Lear, as opposed to um, Hamlet? That would be. I mean, there's been certain father issues throughout your books, and, and mm. Hamlet would be also a kind of a. a given choice, you would think, uh, for, for somebody like... Yes, by the time uh, Hogarth Shakespeare, because Dunbar was part of a series yeah. in which uh, some, some uh, novelists were asked to write 
novels based on Shakespeare plays. By the time they asked me, um, I think Hamlet had been nabbed by oh. someone else. <laughs> um, it would have been the, uh, the only other one, you're absolutely right, mm. that I'd be interested in. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but it had gone, A, and B, I had this special... Um, saturated relationship with, with Lear. And with Lear, when you were 18 years old, was it the language or was it thematically that made you so fond of, of that specific play? It was the A-level. I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just... That's, um, I don't have that in my head. <laughs> it's being at school, you know. <laughs> um, but, so I had to read it and I wrote... I mean, I, I saw my copy of King Lear... Um, not that recently, but I still remember mm. my... It was 16 and 17 that I was studying it, and um, I still remember my seeing my marginalia with some horror. You know, I'd write things like metaphor <laughs> and <laughs> lack of self-K. Lack of self? Self-K. Okay. That was code for self-knowledge. Yeah. You know, so... When, so <laughs> When Leo would say something particularly sort of um, incompetent or stupid, enough. I would write, lack of self-care, <laughs> which sounded as if he hadn't had something for breakfast. Or, but, <laughs> but, um, so there's lots of metaphor and lots of lack of self-care. Self yeah. <laughs> would you, um, then when you sat down, um, uh, when you were commissioned to do it for the Hogarth series, uh, so how... How does one think, uh, or, or what kind of uh, position do you want? Do you take towards somebody like Shakespeare at that point? Uh, what, what kind of reasoning? Well, it was complex. It started out with this sense that I that I knew Leah because of, of my A level experience. Um, <clears throat> then I decided to rather lazily not to reread the play, mm. <laughs> although I did end up rereading it, um, but quickly, because the point was not to shadow the play. No. The point was to write a, a novel using some of its, its great themes. Um, but I rather lazily got a DVD of... I now remember the name of the, the man who played uh, Lear in it, Paul Schofield, mm -hmm. and it was Peter Brooks's version and it was black and white, and I think it was filmed in Sweden, mm -hmm. and everyone was riding on these prehistoric Exmoor ponies through the windswept tundra, and <clears throat> dressed in pelts that looked as if they'd just been torn off an animal. And, <laughs> and, the, the, and they had whole trees in the fireplace, which <laughs> smoked away. And... Um, and Schofield starts, he doesn't start where the play starts, but he starts with the declaration of, of his intention. Mm. So he starts with the word know, K-N-O-W. Um, know that it is our intention. But he pauses for so long mm. that it's not clear whether it's no, K-N-O-W, or N-O, mm. no. Mm. So it's as if the whole of the subsequent disaster comes from this one negative monosyllable. Mm. So it's a very Bacchetian <laughs> leer without a, a, <coughs> uh, a hint of, of redemption. Yeah. 
And there have always been two schools of thought about Lear, about whether there are any redemptive elements in it or whether it's just a portrait of the, um, the existential horror of mm. human existence. Mm. And uh, Peter Brook went very firmly with the second view. There isn't a hint of redemption. Mm. But I think in, if you read the text, it's, it's, uh, that's unfair. Yeah. It was so persuasive, though. Yeah. It was such a brilliant film that I rushed to the phone and rang my agent and said, I haven't signed the contract yet, so <clears throat> you know, maybe I shouldn't. It's, it's overwhelming. Okay. I suddenly realized what I'd taken on. The anxiety of influence was not Shakespeare itself, it was Peter Brooks. It was Peter Brooks, but I, I then, but I got a, first of all, this is just too bleak and horrible yeah. uh, that way from Peter Brook. And then there was the magnitude. Then I got a wave of don't mess with the bard. Okay. Angst. Um, <laughs> so I was in bits by then, having been a sort of schoolboy who was quite happy to, <laughs> to write a novel based on Lear. I was then a wreck, and I said I wouldn't sign the contract until I wrote the first chapter. Yeah. Um, what happened when you wrote the first chapter? Well, then I, I discovered that, that my real task was to write a a novel myself rather than be intimidated by other people. Mm. Um, and I, it started to, to have some vitality, mm. from, to be alive. Mm. Also, um, I mean, I think you've mentioned this previously, but uh, there is a general uh, agreement on that Lear is one of the plays with where the psychological drama of the main character is ex extremely um, uh, important for the play, whereas, especially for the main character, whereas the other characters are not so uh, yes. in transition in that sense. Uh, so did, did Lear, the, per the, the, the character of Lear, also have a certain kind of allure for you? Uh, yes, and um, I'd already, I'd referred to Lear um, in Mother's Milk, mm. um, where... Um, Eleanor Melrose is, is um, <coughs> described by Patrick as being the sort of product of a, a rut on the heath between, <laughs> between King Lear and Mrs. Jellaby, who's the <laughs> compulsive philanthropist in Dickens. So, so I, had, I had Lear in mind a lot of, a yeah. lot of the time in my writing. Um, yes, but the journey, the, la the journey of... <clears throat> from lack of self-care uh, <laughs> to, to self-care um, is, is one which, which is fascinating. I mean, yeah. it is a universal yeah. journey, which I'm very far from having finished. No. And, and you also had to face that, without spoiling anything about the, the ending of the, of the novel, I mean, you had to face that question that uh, you, I mean, knew was the basic question there. Is there a redemption... To this, to this story, or is it is it just existential dread? I, I felt I had to be true to the to the tragic nature of the play, and I don't think it's coherent to say that the play is tragic unless it has a redemptive element. No, because it, it's the fact that Lear makes this journey from a an obsession with power and a mm. misguided desire to give away his power while keeping its trappings. Um, towards love and towards forgiveness. 
And at the moment that he realizes those things, they're snatched away from mm. him. That is the tragedy. Mm. Mm. So if he hadn't realized anything, there would mm. be no tragedy. Mm. Ergo, there is some redemption. Mm. It's just incoherent to mm. say that it's purely bleak. Mm. Mm. Um, but so when, when you write Dunbar then, uh, and we, I mean, the taking on the bard is, is maybe the biggest task you can do, uh, but at the same time you, you would, or one, ha one ha has to agree that even Shakespeare has, has his lesser moments. Uh, were there any, any time where, while you were doing the play that you were thinking, this is, this is something I can actually do better, or I could change this in a, in a, in a uh, beneficial way for, for, for the things that I was... Well, I, I, I didn't see any need for a subplot. There's, no. the, whole, there's the whole subplot that mirrors the main plot with um, Edgar and so forth and Gloucester. But, so I wanted to get rid of that. And then I think things just happened as a result of moving from drama to fiction. Mm. Um, the, the psychological density of, of the novel um, means that characters like Albany don't make sense no. in a novel because Albany is a kind of social climber who marries a king's daughter despite the fact that she's completely obnoxious mm. and then becomes a moral beacon. Well, <laughs> I mean, have you ever met anyone like that? <laughs> I, um, so I created Mark Rush, who's, who's a you know, a, a social climber who remains yeah. a, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but he remains an opportunist yeah. and, yeah. and uh, uh, a dithering, morally feeble person, yeah. which is the, the sort of person who would make the decision in the first place yeah. to marry someone as unpleasant as um, Abigail. And then I thought, <clears throat> I thought I'd go out on a limb and try and make the fool funny, mm. um, which he isn't in the play. No. I mean, he isn't funny to us now. We don't know, because maybe in Shakespeare's day, everyone was, you know, lying on the ground um, <laughs> because they were laughing so much they couldn't stand up when he makes these dreadfully stretched, uh, moralizing puns. <laughs> but, but all these... All he's doing really is punishing the king. He's yeah. saying over and over yeah. again, yeah. if you give everything away, you've got nothing left. Yeah. If you give everything yeah. away, you've got nothing left. Well, it's, it's, um, it's rather punitive and, yeah. and unfunny. Yeah. So I created Peter, who's a, a professional comedian, um, who, whose uh, misfortune is to be an alcoholic. And... Um, and who meets Dunbar in the psychiatric hospital, the sanatorium, yeah. in which he's been imprisoned mm. by his daughters. And they make a joint escape, in Peter's case, because he's desperate to get to the nearest pub. Mm. And <clears throat> in Dunbar's, because he wants to uh, reclaim his empire. Yeah. And we, at this point, we have They to get to the pub. That bit works. <laughs> <laughs> yes. At this point, we have to also mention that the the empire is, is not uh, any kind of empire. They don't. They're not producing tires, or they're not. They don't manufacture uh, sausages. He, the empire is a media empire. Yeah. Uh, and um, you don't have to be extremely original to say that you would think of somebody like Rupert Murdoch or, or Conrad Black, um, so-called media moguls. Um, yeah. 
And so how, how did that idea will itself whip to the idea of, of Lear? Yes, at one point, um, Dunbar gets very indignant about being mistaken for what he calls the, the merely rich. You know, <laughs> um, he hasn't just got a lot of money, he's got political influence yeah. through his media empire. Yeah. So he's used to determining the, the outcome of elections in, in countries all yeah. around the world. Um, and the reason for, for choosing that sort of person was not because I'm interested in Murdoch or Conrad Black or any other person who's in that position, no. but that that position is the modern equivalent of a king. Yeah. I mean, if I'd made him a king, it would have been a joke. I mean, he, <laughs> he would have to be either riding in a glass carriage or folding a bicycle to prove that he was one of the common people or something. Yeah. You know, whatever yeah. kings do yeah. nowadays. It's go not, on television. They, yeah, okay. <laughs> but they, you know, he wouldn't have been a tyrant. No. Uh, or, um, and it's, uh, you know, the, the misuse of power and the misguided pursuit of power yeah. is, is one of the great themes of the book, yeah. along with the lack of self-knowledge and, and so forth. But do you think also that, I mean, you, in the Melrose novels, there's a, a obvious, uh, I mean, the satire that is directed towards the very rich and, and, and not just the, the upper classes, but the very up, upmost class. Uh, is here taken one step further because also there's been a transition uh, towards that kind of absurd amount of, of, of money that the, the moguls now have and, and, if, and also the absurd amount of influence. But there's been a, a change in our society since you, you were uh, writing about this stuff in, in, in the Melrose novels. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the Melroses is... <coughs> the Melroses are set in a world which is you know, uh, mainly upper class, um, uh, but not as necessarily especially rich. No. And, um, and, and certainly more concerned with the, um, the complacencies of tradition than with the exercise of global influence. Mm. There isn't a person of that sort, I think, in, no. the, in the Melbourne. No. Um, so it's a, different, it's a different scene. And as a result, I mean, you can say it's about unhappy families and it's about privileged people, mm. but it's a very different sort of privilege mm. and with many more obvious political mm. reverberations uh, than the Melroses mm. have, although there are, there are political implications mm. of the misuse of power even on a domestic mm. scale. Mm. But in this case, it's explicitly mm. on, on a public scale. Would you, would you agree if I said that Dunbar marks the kind of emergence of a, of a on, even on the surface level, of a much more political writing on your part? Yes. yes. I think that's, that's right. I think I... You know, I, I, the, the Melrose... <coughs> the, the excavation of my, my own memories and my own past and... Um, is mined out. Mm. You know, I've I, I, I finished with the mm. Roses. and um, and I've lost interest in in myself mm. as, a, as a, an individual mm. in many ways. So writing the Melroses 
has enabled me and in some ways forced me mm. uh, to, you know, climb out of the well shaft and <laughs> admire my surroundings mm. you know, mm. and see what's going on in, mm. the, in the wider mm. world. Mm. You know, um. But there's also, I mean, if you look at the ending of, of the last Melrose novel, At Last, there's a, there's a, Patrick is suddenly very much aware of that he has to uh, make a transition from being like the eternal child, uh, uh, I mean, traumatized, mm. to, um, to become the father, basically. Mm. He's, he says something about this, it was his longing for his real children mm. uh, and the true love that is in fatherhood and parenting. Mm. And then you go on and you write a novel about a father, mm. uh, um, that is Lear or Henry Dunbar, mm. uh, who is... Um, who struggles to find that love, and when he finds it, he, he only finds it basically to lose it. Yeah. So, so it seems like even though there are, I mean, major differences, there is a continuation here from, from the Melrose to Dunbar. Absol absolutely, there is a continuation in, uh, in that I'm still writing about um, dysfunctional families. Um, I mean, I'd love to write about a... a, a perfectly functioning family, but mm -hmm. I, I would have to do some research. <laughs> <coughs> and um, also, I don't know how hot a topic it is. Um, it would be a very rare book. <laughs> I know. One of a kind. I mean, good people are the real challenge. And um, for, for, sorry. Uh, Thank you. For a writer. Um, because making good people interesting, I think, is, is <coughs> almost the highest challenge for a, for a novelist, and I'm going to take it on one day. <laughs> do you think also that there's a phase in your life as a novelist where you, you do write as somebody's son, uh, with the kind of perspective of the child, even if you're nominally a grown-up, uh, and there's a phase in, your, in, in the writer's life where you write as somebody's father, uh, with that experience brought to the books? Yes, I think even in the, in, the, in the Melroses, I write about the perspective of a, of a father. Mm. But you're right that the, um, it's a vehicle with dealing, for dealing with a traumatic relationship yeah. with a father. So even as a father, Patrick Melrose remains um, a, a son yeah. uh, who's trying to be a father. Yeah. Um, against the the tide of his conditioning, um, I think yes. With with Dunbar, um, I think yes. It's entirely different. It has no relationship to my life. It has some relationship to Shakespeare. Mm. But again, there has to be, you know, in a novel, some kind of psychological plausibility. Why are the daughters so different? And mm. the explanation I came up with was that there were two Mrs. Dunbar's, mm. there were, there'd been two mothers, and um, Ian McKellen, who's often played King Lear, told me that when he plays King Lear, he always wears two wedding rings, mm. because he came to the same conclusion, mm. that it was the only explanation for this man having one daughter who's an implausible angel, mm. and two daughters who are slightly less implausible <laughs> monsters. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, Cordelia is completely unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I tried to make Florence 
again, more believable, yeah. more conflicted, more, you know, uh, um, with a backstory and, and, and more proud. Yeah. Um, you know, she's, she's broken away from, from her father. So Dunbar's marvelling uh, at the... Yes, he wants, he wants reconciliation and forgiveness, just as, as Lear does. Um, but, uh, and his daughters, in a way, his bad daughters, are puzzled by the fact that they've done everything to copy him mm. and that that hasn't won his love. <laughs> and, um, do you, do you, um, I mean, another common trait between uh, the Melrose novels and and there's some wonderful passages in, in Dunbar, I, I, especially chapter 11, I think, is, is one of the best writing that you've ever done, uh, which is f amazing. I'm going to come back to it later. But uh, do you think there's a... Uh, it seems to me when you're rereading it now that there's an intricate relationship between suffering and pain and the contrasts and comes, that comes from also the beautiful language as, as such. Because normally when you have... Uh, so much suffering that, that there is, uh, and in 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 your novels, uh, there's uh, that there's. Would you say that there's a the, the mastery of language and and the, the language itself has a redemptive quality to when you write about these stuff and the contrast between suffering and the pleasure of language that there's a, a, a contrast that you seek after. Yes, um, I I think the 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 writer has a contract with the reader, you know, like a like a host does, you know, with a guest, mm. um, that you, you don't invite someone to dinner if you haven't got any food in the fridge. Mm. You know? um, and so I think the, even if you're describing something horrible, mm. it has to be done in a way which is exhilarating or mm. beautiful or mm. precise or funny. Mm. It has to have something uh, which will lean towards the Nabokovian ideal of aesthetic bliss. Mm. That's my favorite phrase. Mm. That's what I think of longingly <laughs> while I write my sentences, thinking, well, I don't think this has quite made the grade, but you know, <laughs> I'm going to keep on going, keep on trying for aesthetic bliss. But if, otherwise, I mean, if you're just trying to oppress people with your own yeah. suffering, it's, it's not a very... Um, good contract, is it? <laughs> no, but it's it's very it's very obvious, and I think what makes also your, your book so exceptional that you are managing to 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 hold these both ideas in the reader's head at the same time. That mm. you can have uh, pain at, at such uh, damaging level, and at the same time you can find the pleasure of reading it. It's it's sometimes hard to, for for the readers to to um, connect. Uh, to understand how that that is is made, I think that there's a it's, it's kind of a, a magical trick. Uh, one thing I, I I do feel about the, the chapter eleven, which is like um, which one is that? Th that is the <laughs> the the chapter when when Dunbar is kind of alone. He's on the heath. On the heath. Right. Yes. Is that when he meets Simon? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. 
Uh, and I was thinking, it's I mean, ago, chapter yeah. 11 is even, I, I thought it was code because it's even in, in American parlance, it's, it's the, the, the word for bankruptcy because mm. it's really when he hit, hits his low points uh, mm. that you'd made like a, a very Nabokovian uh, trick there, but maybe oh. I was just over-interpreting. But uh, you don't need to answer that one. It's, well, it's, I, 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 yes, I didn't quite understand it. Sorry, what, no, what did you say? No, the fact that chapter 11 uh, yeah. is also the, the American way of, of declaring back bankruptcy. Oh, chapter yeah. 11. Oh, yes, of course. Of course, I but get it. Maybe that's over-interpreted. No, that, no, I hadn't thought of that, Sorry. but I'm going to claim it from now could you please, on. Could you please <laughs> do? Um, that's my, my deep plan for this novel. <laughs> Thank um, you. Uh, but it's also, uh, well, it's also when he's becoming, I mean, increasingly mad and, yeah. and losing his mind in, a, in an extremely uh, interesting way. And, and I was... Um, and there's... A, there's a, uh, Quote that I would like to, 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 to uh, relate here, it, it says like this. It was late to be beginning an introspective journey, but in you had no choice. The last few weeks had not been just about madness. They had taken him away from the world of facts and statistics and laws and into a world of metaphors and insights and obscure connections. And there's a sense here that um, there's a certain truth to madness mm. uh, that you find in in that chapter, and also you find it in certain parts of, of bad news in the Melrose novels. Mm. Uh, and um, and I, I think that, is there a truth to that, that there is a, a truth disguised in madness? Yes, uh, up to a point, I think that's true, but um, uh, Donald Winnicott, who was a, a great um, uh, British psychoanalyst, said that you could tell that someone was truly mad when they bored you completely <laughs> and, you were, and you were desperate yeah. to get out of their company. Yeah. So I don't think... I, that's why there isn't a chapter 13 in which... He, <laughs> in which because I alternate between, yeah. between Dunbar alone yeah. and, and the other characters in action yeah. for, for, for several chapters yeah. in a row. All the odd-numbered ones, uh, 7, 9, 11, are Dunbar yeah. on his own. And there isn't a 13, because then he would have been in a Winnicottian state <laughs> of, of madness, and he would have wanted to slam the book closed. Yeah. But I think just before utter madness, uh, there's the possibility of making connections which are invisible mm. to the rational mm. mind. And that's what's happening to... Dunbar, yeah. and it's also unfamiliar territory for him because he's been um, so uh, lucid about the exercise of power. He hasn't been looking for hidden connections. No, no. Uh, it's, uh, if he'd been a poet, it would be less of a surprise, but he, but he wasn't. He was but he's a mogul who starts to think like a poet. He way. starts to, he's, he's forced uh, to think like a poet um, because uh, the, um, I mean, that is what, what metaphor is, is basically making a connection between things which are, are dissimilar mm. and, then f and finding a similarity between them mm. which was hidden before the mm. metaphor came into being. And <clears throat> so he, he is um, he's starting to have that experience in a very... Uh, rapid mm. and 
fluid and uncontrolled way. I also um, I mentioned the word truth because I think that was when I was uh, doing my homework here and I was comparing and thinking about the Melrose novels and Dunbar, I think there are both books about the truth and the notion of truth and, and the complexity of, of truth mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, on, on, in the Melrose novels, there's, the truth is on a personal level, mm. uh, very much so, uh, for, for Patrick to finally recognize how to speak the truth mm. about his situation and his, and his inheritance. Uh, and on, for Dunbar, it's, or it's I mean, obviously also existential truth at yeah. the point where he's, where, he's, where he's about to lose basically his life. Uh, and I'm going to quote the last sentence of the book without spoiling anything, if that's okay, but, but it's okay, so, so beautiful. Um, All of us will be blown to dust, said Wilson, but the understanding won't be destroyed, and it can't be, as long as someone is left standing who still prefers to tell the truth. Mm. Uh, And it seems, I mean, if you'd written that uh, sentence like 10 years ago, I don't think it would ring, I mean, I would say it's still beautiful, but I would say that there's a certain notion in this day and age, and this book was published originally in 2017, so it's already, we're part, Far, we went, ventured far into the post-truth notion in the world. Yes. Uh, would you say that this is, a, a, is that the, the connection between truth and, and, and Dunbar as a media mogul is, is something that you thought about writing the book, that there's, the truth is in peril? Uh, yes, I, I think that the truth is in peril, and that that's why... I mean, I, I agree to begin at the beginning, and then I'll come back to your last question. I agree that that what, what uh, Patrick has to abandon in order to discover the truth is his addiction to irony, yeah. whereas what Dunbar has to abandon to, um, to be, become acquainted with the truth is his addiction with control. Yeah. So, yeah. so they both have to renounce something very different. Yeah. But I do think in his being a, a media mogul is is significant, and there's a, there's a passage about the, the consequences of, of the lies that he's told in yeah. his papers and the way, the way that he's um, used them to persecute his enemies. And, um, and we, we do live in a, 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 an age in which there, is, there are hardly any papers of records. No. There are just... Um, uh, tribal propaganda machines, um, you know, arguing for whatever cause they yeah. happen to to support. I don't think um, the the idea of the the truth has informed Fox News at any point at all. Mm. You know. um, there are a few cranky institutions like the BBC that that cling to an idea of impartiality mm. but even with them there's there are, there are, there are you know the winds of political correctness mm. that made everyone lean in a certain mm. direction mm. you know there's um, uh, the, the truth can't be um, as trendy as it's become <laughs> <laughs> but why why if you if you look at it more from a on a kind of social level I mean there, we all know that truth is it's extremely hard to find, and we know that truth is very rare, and, and, you, and you speak the truth to a certain cost. And at the same time, it seems to be devalued in, 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 the, in com- the mind of the, of the, of the, of the citizen. 
Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Why is it devalued? Um, well, by these organizations that want to um, propagate uh, propaganda. Um, I, I think it's uh, um, a very dangerous time that we're living, mm. living through. Um, I, I think, uh, yes, uh, the, the way in which no amount of lying can bring down either the Prime Minister of England or the President of the United States mm. is a shocking state of affairs. Mm. I mean, every day they do something which would have forced them to resign, mm. you know, mm. um, several times. Yeah. In, in a, I mean, even 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago, yeah. they would have had to resign yeah. five times a day. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but instead, they're writing executive orders or, yeah. or, or tweeting more lies. So it's an odd, it's an odd time. There seems to be no. Uh, it's it's frightening yeah. when no amount of lying can get you discredited. No, there's a there's a. I read a review where Henry. Unless Lund you're Prince Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I read a review where Henry Dunbar was described as almost Trumpian, which which made me think about. Uh, as a writer, you've always enjoyed uh, a certain amount of, of pushing your characters to the edge and, and for, for the sake of satire, making the worst traits even bigger or enhanced and, and more in order to scrutinize them, I think, for, for comedy and clarity. But will this mean also, when you have somebody at the center stage like Donald Trump, that you, as a writer, feel that there's no way you can invent something like that, that you actually are being uh, kind of... Uh, yeah. Outpaced by reality. I don't. I don't think Dunbar is Trumpian at all. I, first of all, because it's completely unimaginable to that Trump would acquire self-knowledge under any <laughs> circumstances. <clears throat> there isn't a Heath, um, at least on this planet, which would enable him to acquire self-knowledge. So no. he'd be useless as a as a um, a cover for Lear. Um, and secondly, I think Dunbar is actually quite touching. Mm. Uh, he becomes more and more mm. touching in his um, fragility and in his journey to, mm. uh, from, from an obsession with power and control towards forgiveness and love. And I, I ended up feeling rather protective towards mm. him. So I would say, you know, Trump should be so lucky <laughs> as to be Henry Dunbar. Um, I mean, Henry Dunbar's quite likable in a way. Yes, um, he uh, is. Not at the beginning, but no. he, becomes, he becomes more and more likable. And I think that the, 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 the passage where he becomes likable is where he's on the heath. Uh, yeah. And, and suddenly everything is... Madness gives him clarity. Uh, well, let's, let's try it. Let's put Trump on a very, very big golf course <laughs> <laughs> and leave him there alone for three hours. Um, and then pick him up by helicopter. And what would happen if you would put Boris Johnson on that golf course? <laughs> uh, what would happen? I, uh, I, I think he would, he would just um, uh, lie. Yeah. You know, um, um, and, you know, like, <laughs> like, like Goldfinger, you know, a 
golf ball would drop out of his trousers just next to the 18th hole. Yeah, yeah. And he'd say, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I won. Would you, I mean, the, the current situation we, in the UK, you, you're heading towards the uh, election uh, for one, to once again decide the fate of the country. Yeah. Uh, and, and is it possible at this point to, to, la to laugh? I mean, not, you mentioned Nabokov, he spoke about laughter in the dark. Is it, is it still uh, uh, something that you can make comedy out of? of no, this, this touches on the question I didn't answer because we got lost in yeah. Trump's inability to acquire yes. self-knowledge. But yes, it's, I don't think this is a point in history where um, satire is a promising literary form because no. there's nothing a, a writer can invent which won't be outstripped you know, mm. by, um, by tomorrow's tweet or um, front page. Mm. So satire is the wrong direction mm. to go. I still think there's lots of room for tragedy. Mm. Um, and, Sadly. Um, and, uh, and, and comedy. But, um, and the, the mixture of the two, which is what interests me, because mm. I don't think uh, life presents itself as a literary form. Um, no. Uh, but as, as something more um, complex. So, but satire, it's very difficult to be a satirist at mm. the moment mm. because um, we live in a self-satirizing uh, world that's, uh, that's, that's terrifying. It's, yeah. it's difficult to explain to the children, actually, the, the genre, how it works. Yes. Uh, there's ver the lack of, of, of or the, there are too many examples, basically. Uh, one irony, I think, uh, that is when you think about, you wrote Dunbar at the very same time as the Melrose novels were being prepared for, for, for TV, as a, as a TV series. Yes. It was overlapping anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and which is interesting in a way, because um, it's, it meant that you had to engage in, in, on a practical level as the, the author of the Melrose novel with that world that Dunbar represents and basically owns. Mm. Uh, did that inform the novel? Did it... Did it I mean, did you...? Well, the, the novel was, was finished before the filming started. Mm. I mean, I think. If we, no one cares about facts. No, so so I, say, I, let's I, say it's that. What the hell? <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. Uh, but um, uh, <laughs> I think I'm right. But, um, and so, for me it was more... No, I didn't think about that. I was... I mean, some people were struck by what they thought was the irony of um, Sky uh, being the production company which decided to make Dunbar when a few deluded people thought that it must be based on the owner of Sky, mm. Rupert Murdoch, mm. which it absolutely isn't. Um, but um, no, it didn't inform it. What, the, the, for me, the, the strangeness of, of the two things being close to each other was that they were both um, shifts from one form to another. Mm. I was turning a novel into a tele... or helping, I wasn't doing it. It was being done by 120 other people. Mm. But I was watching, I mm. was looking on amazed while a, n my novels were being turned into a television mm. series, and at the same time I was turning a play into mm. a novel. So, um, 
I, was, I became very interested in the refractive value of moving from mm. one form to another, from mm. drama to fiction and from fiction to drama, mm. um, and what's lost and what's gained by, by doing that. So, but it also seemed like, the, I mean, the common uh, trope of, of adaptation is that the, the author is uh, bound to be disappointed by his meeting with a kind of merciless TV industry. Whereas mm. in your case, I mean, I think and everybody who's seen the TV series also could say that this is an extremely uh, pleasurable adaptation. Well, pleasurable, but for the viewer in, in, a, in a kind of aesthetic sense anyway. Mm. Uh, and, and very successful on, on every single level, uh, uh, commercially, uh, aesthetically, mm. uh, and, so, and, and obviously beneficial also for, for your books. Uh, so, um, would you think that, uh, is this, so is this relationship between TV and literature uh, something that, I mean, that could be uh, reviving literature, you think? Or is it, this is, or is your, your, are your, your novels a kind of exception to, to the rule that this is a, is a cannibalistic relationship between the different forms? I think I was, I, I thought it was a brilliant adaptation mm. and I was very, very lucky. Um, because as you say, the, the, Habitual relationship is one of disappointment yeah. and um, frustration and betrayal. Um, whereas I just thought the the films were works of art in their own right and they were magnificent. Um, but um, I think I think uh, when when a novel moves into into cinema, um, the very thing we were talking about earlier, um, which is the exhilaration of the prose, mm. the, the aesthetic mm. bit, such as it is, that mm. the prose delivers, can't be filmed. You no. can't film no. that. No. And so uh, the, there's a literalness to cinema, mm. um, and it's a simulacrum of life, which is very convincing. Um, and whereas with reading, uh, the, you're experiencing the prose first and the movement of the author's mind and you're reconstructing uh, the, the, the prose into images in your own imagination. Mm. And every individual reader has their own picture. Mm. Whereas in, in cinema, you're being told that this is the house, this is the mother, mm. this is Patrick. Mm. You know, Patrick is... And I have to say, it's a great relief because people have been asking me for um, nearly a quarter of a century whether I'm Patrick Melrose. And I can now say, no, 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 Benedict Cumberbatch is Patrick. <laughs> uh, so, you know, but there is only one Patrick Melrose, yeah. and he's Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, and, but the... Um, so, so some pleasures are lost, but some pleasures are gained mm. because there are things that mm. cinema uh, has a genius for, which, mm. um, you know, in, in one shot, uh, you, you can see the house. You don't need three pages of prose to describe it. Mm. Um, and a really skillful actor in, in, in one gesture can imply a whole state mm. of mind. Um, so there's a, there's a brilliant economy 
um, and also there can be a network of images in in cinema which are, which are mnemonics for a whole mm. psychological mm. state or, or part of the narrative. Do you think also that there's a risk that sometimes there are, because the adaptations are, or similarities are uh, obvious in certain cases, that we, we spoke about earlier the uh, Dunbar is being compared to Succession, for instance, the TV series, also about if, uh, of a, of a mog media mogul and his family business. And, and so, whereas, I mean, that's a story that is on the surface similar to, to the story of Lear, but on, on the, under the surface, it's still a different story. Do, do you it's entirely different. I just think it was opportunistic of some publicists to write on the poster you know, a modern King Lear. <laughs> and because it's nothing to do with King Lear. It's no. not about a man who's unwisely giving away his power while hoping to keep the semblance of power. It's about a man obsessed with holding on mm. to power. Mm. He doesn't have two monstrous children and one good child. He has three repulsive children. <laughs> and um, and he... He plays them against each other in order to in order to hold on to power. Now I'm not saying that's you know an uninteresting story, no. but it has nothing to do with King Lear. No. And it also um, and he's not on a journey towards self knowledge either. No. Um, he's he's um, uh, deciding how to uh, keep control of his company, not only to the end of his life, but beyond it, yeah, you know, yeah. which is what I think rich people call legacy. Don't <laughs> my legacy. Yeah. Uh, 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 we, we're about to end uh, this conversation. I was thinking, uh, now you've, this, from, from my perspective, there is always a line, I mean, from, from the Melrose novels to Dunbar, uh, even if, uh, I mean, you, uh, you can discuss how that line is really drawn. But uh, I was thinking about now you're entering, uh, uh, there's some preoccupation in, in Dunbar with aging. Uh, mm. And also I was thinking of the phrase that I think it was Edward Said who coined it, late, the late style. Mm. Uh, what would the late style of Edward St. Aubyn be? And what would, can we expect from you around the corner? God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, late styles of are very interesting. I'm sometimes they're marked by sharp decline. I mean, who wants a, a late Picasso as opposed mm -hmm. to a Demoiselle d'Avignon or, or whatever? You know, they, yeah. there, are, there, are, there are declines. Um, sometimes I think people get even better, mm. like Henry James. Mm. Um, I think the Golden Bull and the Wings of the Dove mm. are... Uh, are even greater than Portrait of Lady. Well, I love Portrait mm, of Lady, but mm. they're just as great mm. anyway. Um, so, y you know, and some people remain very good without being at their absolute peak, mm. like, like Yeats, you know, mm. but they don't start just um, taking the piss like Picasso. You know? um, <laughs> and so I, I, I think it's, very, it's a very interesting... Um, the uh, question how people... I hope I'm going to go down the James route mm. and get, get better. Um, I... Yeah, I'd like... I'm, I'm glad you liked Chapter 11 and thought it was some of my, <laughs> some of my best writing, you know. And you mm. didn't choose 
I don't know, chapter 11 from Nevermind or something. That would have been depressing. So, the, the, you know, I, I hope I get better at yeah. this. It's a practice. It's like anything else. Yeah. You know, the, the possibility is there um, to just uh, um, to improve. And I hope that's the route I go down. I can tell everybody and, and you that I'm sure that that's, that's what's going to happen. Thank, thank you so much, Teddy, for having this conversation, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you.